0: and welcome to another edition of the 7th Avenue Project, radio for those who really want to know. I'm Robert Polly, and today, part two of our amateur's guide to particle physics. Last week, we introduced the so-called standard model of particle physics, which summarizes most of what scientists know about things down there at the subatomic level. And as we learned, standard model is a deceptively bland name for what is, in fact, a monumental and staggeringly imaginative set of ideas. We contemplated some of its marvels in our last show, and we're going to delve even deeper today. We're going to describe the search for order beneath the complexity and some of the organizing principles, like symmetry, that may tie current theories together into a complete picture of the forces of nature. That, after all, is the ultimate goal, what physicists call grand unification. And our guru and mentor and chaperone in all of this will once again be Bruce Schum. He's a particle physicist, Professor at UC Santa Cruz and the author of the book Deep Down Things The Breathtaking Beauty of Particle Physics. And uh, just a word of reassurance before we plunge in. As you listen to this show, uh, don't worry too much if you have a nagging feeling that you've missed a few details. It's not your fault. There was just no way we could cram every relevant piece of this vast subject into an hour long show. But by identifying some of the key landmarks, we do at least hope to give you a sense of the terrain that physicists are exploring and some of the wondrous things they've discovered. So with that in mind, away we go. Well, Bruce, welcome back.
1: Now, yeah, Business must be slow.
0: <laughs> but you are ready for round two.
1: Uh, yeah, come at me.
0: <laughs> well, let's do a, a quick recap. Let's go over what we managed to lay out last time we talked in part one of our conversation. Um, we managed to establish that Particle physics has identified a bunch of particles, 20 or so uh, fundamental indivisible particles, at least as far as we know, that make up other particles that in turn make up the that, world we see. That make up and hold together. That the make particles. up and hold together. Yeah. Uh And they come in two, you know, major classes, fermions and bosons. Fermions make up matter and bosons transmit forces, right? Yes. Then we have fields, which is sort of the way these forces are distributed across space.
1: That's right. That's sort of the cumulative effect of these exchanges of bosons. Right. That would be the fields.
0: Right. Okay. So uh, now let's let's put things in motion. Let's talk a bit about how these particles interact. Now, we said last week that two fermions, that is matter particles, and uh, just to remind listeners that Uh, Fermions include things like electrons, which we're we're all quite familiar with, and quarks, which make up protons and neutrons. And these are the stuff of matter. Uh, When they interact with each other, um, seemingly repel each other or attract each other, what's really going on there is they're exchanging these other particles called bosons, which carry the force. And I'm reminded that your book has a really nice uh, metaphor of what this looks like. It involves two ice skaters standing facing each other, On their skates. That's right. And one of them tosses a heavy object, let's say uh, a concrete block, (laughs) to the other one. (laughs) Right?
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for sure, yeah.
0: (laughs) Now what's going to happen when one ice skater facing the other, tosses uh, this heavy object over?
1: Well, what happens if you're on ice skates and you throw something heavy in one direction, you go in the other direction.
0: You're pushing against that object that you're throwing. Yes, exactly. So you go backwards.
1: That's right. There's no friction to hold you there. So when that block goes in one direction, you go in the other now if you've engineered things correctly then it's going to be uh hurling over towards your partner who is going to catch that and of course they're going to receive the energy momentum really of that block and go in the other direction. Now if you're watching this from up on a hill somewhere you don't see the block because it happens to say to be the same color as the ice it looks like you know the tosser without any visible way of 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 making contact has repelled the tossy
0: so uh, in a way, these uh, these two skaters are like, say, two electrons who's, because they have the same charge, negative, are repelling each other. But what's really happened is something has sort of transpired between the two of them, which is this third object, a boson, that is the thing that got tossed. That's right. Now, if we really wanted to make it realistic, that, that boson didn't come from nowhere. It, it sort of was emitted by one particle toward the other, right? Yes, so, that's right. So could we have the the skater A coughing up the uh, concrete block, throwing it at the other skater who swallows it?
1: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's um, it's a property of uh, quantum field theory, um, advanced quantum mechanics that involves special relativity, that you can create particles and destroy them, and uh, so that's what you're actually doing. It's not the concrete block is not a perfect metaphor, because <laughs> the concrete block is hard to hard to destroy. But in the case of the electrons that are repelling each other, the photon is created at a point that's occupied at one point in time by that electron and then goes on its merry way and then is received and destroyed mm. by the receiving object. And in, in, in the formal theory, we have creation and annihilation operators that, that, that handle the mathematics of that for us.
0: Great. Well, well, now that we've made things nice and simple with our, our metaphor of one skater throwing an object to another one and both of them thus being pushed away from each other, um, I'm thinking back to something you said in our last conversation, which is that particles really are waves until they interact with each other. So am I right in thinking that most of the time they are just these ripples with a kind of ill-defined border spreading out through space? And only when these ripples sort of come together in a certain way do we have what looks like a, a real particle interaction.
1: Well, it's not that they come together in a certain way. It's just that the know, the wave function, is modified by an interaction that recasts the object in, in a different way, in, in, in and in a way that, if you do it right, uh, is a way that manifests more as a particle than a, than a wave. Okay. And if you do it wrong or the other way, uh, then it would manifest more as a, as a distributed wave than as a localized particle.
0: Hmm. Well, my picture of... <laughs> The point at which particles interact again is based on my um, my original billiard ball idea. Two particles on a collision course, you know, aimed right at each other, smack together and uh, and something ensues. But they're delocalized waves before they smack together. So, what's a collision course in that case? What is it that makes this interaction happen?
1: Well, you know that the quantum mechanist's favorite word is is probable, probably mm-hmm. I should say, and so. Uh, <clears throat> You know it's just a question of probability you have these waves that are that are not localized if you typically you would prepare a beam uh, if you're doing an experiment uh where the particles in it would be delocalized at the scale of a millimeter but the size of these particles if you're actually going to hit them is a very small fraction of even the proton's radius and so the chances that particle A in, in beam A and particle B in beam B are going to hit each other is very small. Mm. It's just, uh, but every once in a while, it does happen. And the way you make it happen more often is not by getting in there and directing them at each other more carefully, but just by putting a lot of particles in beam A and a lot of particles in beam B and just hoping for the best.
0: So these wave functions have in them a probability variable. And you can look at that and say, here's here's the probability that, that they will bump into something, interact with something in this part of space.
1: Well, uh, I mean, to say they have within them a probability, it doesn't go far enough. That's exactly what's waving in quantum mechanics <laughs> is the probability, probability density uh-huh. um, uh, of the particles or actually the, the complex square root of the probability density. So that's what quantum mechanics is. Uh, first and foremost, is inca- encapsulating the probabilistic nature of nature, if you will, in in a, a waving formalism that allows us to uh, incorporate both the wave and particle-like natures of, of matter.
0: I, I think what you've just said, Bruce, will um, will be just crystal clear to everybody who's listening.
1: Yeah, well, it seems <laughs> it makes sense to me. <laughs>
0: well well again in my role as the as the simplifier in this conversation could we could we say that this wave like entity that sometimes acts like a particle is uh characterized by some probabilities and those probabilities are what determine the likelihood of its interacting with another particle and its probabilities that's right okay good good uh and and the the equation that um if i'm not mistaken uh that that sort of Lays all this out is is the Schrödinger equation and its
1: cousins. And it's but cousins. that's right. It's and the Schrödinger-like equations that accompany it as you develop the theory a little further. But let's just say for the sake of uh, simplicity, yes, the, the the wave equation.
0: And I have read that the the Schrödinger equation is um, the master equation of quantum mechanics. In fact, that it tells you exactly what you need to know, all the stuff you need to know about all the particles in the, in the universe. And um, you even have a, a version of the Schrodinger equation in your book, and I'm, I've looked at it, and it's pretty simple. There's a little tiny bit of calculus in it, but otherwise, only a, a handful of terms. Uh, it's pretty short. Um, how could this possibly be the complete description uh, of everything you need to know about a particle?
1: Well, you have to appreciate that that Schrodinger equation was a Schrodinger equation for a single particle moving through, you know, in a, in a, through a very simple configuration. So, it, you know, a Schrodinger equation. That, uh, you know, was the controlling equation for the entire universe is going to look significantly more complex than that. But it's not, it's not the Schrodinger equation that tells us everything about the universe. It's the solutions to the Schrodinger equation. right, so you have an equation, and an equation says, you know, just waves his hand and says, solve me, (laughs) you know, find out what, you know, what what my answer is. It's the answer to the Schrodinger equation, the so-called wave function the thing that when you plug into the Schrodinger equation makes the left side equal to the right side, yeah, that's the thing that contains all the information that can possibly be known about the universe. And to go from the Schrodinger equation, even in a simple form, you know, a, s- a form almost as simple as I showed in the book, to that solution, well, that that's where the, the real work lies. So um, here's the simply s- simple. It, it looks particularly simple, but that's because there's a lot of shorthand that's been put into that. Uh-huh. And even then, when you open that up, uh, then you still have to solve the thing. You know? And, and uh, there's two things to, to you know, solving a, a problem. One is developing the equation, and the other is solving it. And mm. all we've shown is a developed equation. We haven't even shown that, that completely.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. So um, my idea that maybe uh, we could figure out how two wave-like entities might interact, whether they'll interact, and how they might interact... Is really a simple matter, of of plugging some numbers into the Schrodinger equation, and boom, out pops the likelihood that these waves are going to come together in, you know, in a particle-like collision.
1: Uh, in, in principle, although that's really not so much the way it's done. I mean, what, the way it's done is that <clears throat> some physicists from uh, some time ago basically solved the Schrodinger equation for us and came up with a bunch of rules. And so the Schrodinger equation, you know, kind of describes the universe and, and, and constrains the universe. But what we're really interested in is something that tells us what's the likelihood that particle A is going to throw that photon to particle B and the likelihood that particle B is going to receive that photon. Yeah. And, you know, the, the names that go along with this are Feynman, Tomonaga, and Schwinger. Uh, these are the people that developed the so called Feynman rules that you know, allow us to basically put aside the, the Schrodinger equation and, and its cousins uh, the wave equations in favor of some relatively simple rules uh, of course this is a great advancement because when you take something as complex as quantum mechanics relativistic quantum mechanics and condense it to some simple relatively simple rules that uh, you can just pick and choose as you want to assemble these processes ok I have to have a photon be emitted here and that photon can decay into matter, any matter which comes back together to another photon, and that a photon is absorbed. That sounds pretty complicated, but you just basically take this tray of rules that was put forward by Feynman and others, and you just pick them and you string them together. You have to do a little calculus, but at the end of the day, out comes the answer.
0: So, so when we say Feynman, I want to remind listeners that we mean Richard Feynman, well-known physicist, um, very much loved physicist in part because he was a funny guy who did things like playing the bongos. Everyone knows that about him, if they know anything.
1: Yeah, he also wrote some some funny books.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, he, you know, aside from advancing physics by a huge amount in the 20th century, he did some fun stuff. Uh, and that's what makes uh, physicists really popular. You know, Einstein on his bicycle, Feynman with his bongos. What's your shtick, Bruce? you got to have one, you know.
1: Oh, you don't <laughs> want to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> We can worry about that later.
0: (laughs) Well, so Feynman gave us this kind of recipe for figuring out how and when uh, particles will interact. Um, And he also had these cool little drawings that, uh, I guess, made it simple to conceptualize called Feynman diagrams.
1: That's right. These drawings are just what we've been talking about, the drawings where you have a particle A emitting uh, some wavy thing, photon, and being absorbed by particle B. They, They just do nothing more than draw out the geometry of that process. And once you've drawn that, then the Feynman rules come in and tell you how to get the answers from that drawing.
0: I uh, had the opportunity to interview a well-known physicist a couple years ago who took me into his office just to show me his, you know, sort of working process. And because he's a theoretical physicist, most of what he did was in his head and occasional jottings on paper. And I looked on his desk and there were hand-drawn Feynman diagrams, among other things. He was actually drawing these things. I thought, that's amazing. I mean, I've seen these in textbooks, but physicists really do draw these things.
1: Well, that's right. We draw them all the time, and and thank God they're easy to draw because, (laughs) you know, we we don't have much formal. Most of us don't have much formal education in the arts.
0: (laughs) They just show a couple of lines coming together, and then um, when they get close, there's usually a little squiggle or, or a set of squiggles between them representing these bosons being passed from one particle to another, right? That's right. And then the two particles may be going off in new directions after this boson is passed between them.
1: That's right. I mean, you think about it, you know, if you are a painter, there is basically three colors, right, in, in the world, and so from these three colors, you get to, you know, create virtually anything visual, and you know, the the Feynman rules are pretty simple. I mean, you have certain type of particles connecting with these other wavy things, and there's not that much you can do, but you would be surprised at just how many different processes there are that you can draw with these, and how it really advantages your thinking to sit down and say, wait a second, let me just draw this process out as as Feynman would have wanted me to. And then, and then you, all of a sudden, things clarify, and you have insights that in, you look at yourself in retrospect, I should have known that. But uh, it, really, it really helps. <laughs> hmm.
0: I, I'll put an example of a Feynman diagram up on my website so listeners who want to visit that can see what they look like. That's 7thavenueproject.com. So in the next part of our conversation, I want to get to the, the, uh, some of the deeper principles that really begin to hint at an order that underlies all of this disparate stuff we've been talking about. All these different particles, all these different kinds of interactions. To begin with, we talked about 20 or so fundamental particles, which may seem like a lot. And, of course, when you, when you list their names, it begins to sound really head-spinning. You know, you've know, got your muons, and you've got your W and Z bosons, and you've got your quarks and your electrons. And uh, what's your favorite particle?
1: I had a lot of fun studying the Z boson when there I was you a go. young man,
0: <laughs> and then there's the neutrino. That's my personal favorite because yeah. it's so aloof from everything. It just yeah. basically passes through matter. You know, hardly anything ever disturbs it. It hardly interacts with anything. Yeah,
1: it t- basically takes a carved up battleship to stop one. And that, that's in fact <laughs> that's how I got my PhD was colliding neutrinos with the with the sheet, with the um, the metal sides of of the retired navy ships that had been carved up and. <sighs>
0: I think this is a, a little tangent that we should go on. neutrinos, because they don 't really um, participate in the electromagnetic force at all that 's right they don 't interact with most of matter. they just simply you know pass right through matter in order to detect them, you have to get it colliding with something, and since matter really at the bottommost level is mostly just empty space, particles take up only a very small part of the volume of any matter, you need some really dense matter. To catch a neutrino.
1: Well, I wouldn't say dense, but you just need a lot of a it. lot of matter. Yeah, I mean, so the the experiment I was on, we had a, a neutrino target. In other words, the thing you aimed the neutrinos at, that was a hundred tons.
0: <laughs> so, and it was literally a chunk of a battleship hull.
1: Well, it was it was uh, yeah it was, it was what's the word not shielding but the uh you know the stuff you put on the outside of the battleship and to make the outside of the ship the armor. Yeah. Armor, yeah, that's right. Uh, basically, it, it was just carved up into 10-foot by 10-foot sections. We just stacked these up and put some sort of uh, particle detectors in between them and just ran out of the room and hoped the neutrinos would would collide. Was this at Fermilab? The, yeah, this was at Fermilab in the, in the neutrino beam. That's right.
0: This is the uh, <laughs> big research facility, particle accelerator, etc. In In uh, Illinois, um, you were at the University of Chicago as a grad student, so that's the— the facility you would have used, yeah. That's right. So Uh, did you catch your neutrino?
1: (coughs) We caught a few, yeah. We caught enough for me to get the heck out of there. (laughs) Um, But (coughs) the thing about neutrinos is that the more energy they have, the more likely they are to interact, and that's kind of unique with these neutrinos. We were actually in in the comfortable range of having about one in a million interact in our target. But if you take the neutrinos that are low energy, the ones that come from the sun, which, you know, it's it's very interesting to look at those because they tell us about the sun. Or if you look at the neutrinos that were around since the universe originated, so actually they contain the information about the earliest point in the universe we can probe. It, it'd be very interesting to look at those, but they're low energy, and they don't interact much. I mean, you've got, oh, on the order of uh, 10 trillion neutrinos going through your body every second from the sun, and uh, they're not interacting. So... Uh, you know the neutrinos that we really want to look at. Well, it was int- it's interesting to do the particle accelerator energy neutrino experiments for other reasons, but the ones we really would like to look at, the ones that contain this primordial information about the universe, those are extremely hard to detect. Mm. If anybody can figure out how to do that, um, there's uh, certainly a seat waiting for them in, st- in Stockholm.
0: Take a lot of battleships, I imagine. Well, you
1: can't do it that way. <laughs> um, yes, you have to be a little more clever. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> but uh, we do have all these particles, as I say, you know, a, a virtual uh, bestiary of particles. And and all that may sound pretty wild and, uh, and chaotic to people. But, in fact, there are some, if you look closely, there are some commonalities and some correspondences among these particles. For instance, um, fermions and bosons, these two major classes of particles, um, all fermions have what's called half-integer spin, right? Yeah. All bosons have whole integer spin is that right that's right maybe you can quickly explain what that means
1: well it's just um you know when you get a ball spinning it's got some spin or right? it's uh-huh. got some <clears throat> we would call it angular momentum but there's some energy in that motion so it turns out that there's a minimum and that in fact that minimum is Planck's constant if you you know there's there's a few fundamental constants in nature the speed of light is one of them and Planck's constant is another one of those and what that is strictly speaking is a minimum amount amount of spinning and it turns out that well you can actually get a little you can have half of that. And if you have half of that minimum amount, or three halves of that minimum amount, or five halves of that minimum amount, then you're a fermion. And if you have zero, one, two, three, four, et cetera, times that minimum amount, then you're a boson.
0: Amazing. Uh despite all the different properties of these things, they they all fall into one of those two categories. Their spin is a multiple of one half or a multiple of a whole number. Yes. Uh, that's that's really something. Plus, all the particles that we've talked about, th- they can be uh, described as as coming in generations. And uh, I, I gather that that doesn't mean that one group, you know, is the parent to another group.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, basically, it's just a, the idea of more of same. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the basic building blocks of everyday matter electron, up quark, down quark, and I, I will say electron neutrino, just not because it's part of anything that, that's bound into us, but there's somebody going through us so we can say it's basic matter. So that, that's one generation. And then we have two more generations, which are just more of the same. The only difference is that they're heavier. The, the other generations are exactly identical, but they're heavier.
0: So, you know, out of this particle zoo, in fact, we're beginning to say... Oh, look, there's a species. There's a species. That's right.
1: There's, there's basically just four different types of fermions of, of these matter particles, <clears throat> things that are like electrons, things that are like neutrinos, things that are like up quarks, and things that are like down quarks. So there's really only four. And then there's three different sets of those. And um, why three? Well, that, that, that's interesting. Um, so let's just pause for a moment there. Have you ever heard about any matter? or watch Star Trek or whatever, you know that matter and antimatter don't really like each other. And this is true. I mean, when matter and antimatter get together, they annihilate into, for the sake of simplicity, into pure energy. Mm -hmm. So if our universe is going to exist, we have to somehow get rid of all the antimatter early on. And it turns out that the very recent Nobel Prize, not the most recent, but last year's Nobel Prize, was one because some physicists realized that it takes three generations of matter to create the possibility of having a difference between matter and antimatter mm. and so there's, some, there's something magical about 3 so that 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 tells you perhaps why 3 is convenient to have but it doesn't explain why we have three different Generations, three different more of same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine that that physicists worry about this a lot. I mean, they love that kind of numerology because it, it, to them, that suggests that there is some underlying principle that has to explain that. And so that that's a head scratcher that that uh, has worn a lot of holes in people's scalps. Um, but we you know we have yet uh, the theory of everything has to explain why there are three and only three generations. But, yeah, that that's right. Ah. Uh-huh. And uh, But we don't have that theory of everything yet.
0: Uh-huh. Um, just to, uh, to quickly explain the matter-antimatter uh, question, as we said in our last interview, uh, last week's show, uh, for every matter particle, and matter particles are the ones that we know quite well because they make up all of our, all of our objects, um, there is uh, a pretty much identical but oppositely charged antimatter particle that can be created. Uh, So for an electron, there's something called a positron, which is exactly like an electron, but it has positive charge instead of negative charge. But the fact is that there's not a lot of real antimatter out there. Otherwise, they'd be colliding and annihilating each other all the time, and we wouldn't have any matter at all. Instead, the universe is made up of matter, not antimatter. Antimatter is only produced transiently in rare circumstances, right? I mean, occasionally you guys can create some antimatter in a particle accelerator, that's right. And it bumps into its matter counterpart, extinguishes itself, and it's gone forever. Yes. Uh, and so there's a mystery as to why in the early universe there weren't equal amounts and why it didn't just all explode.
1: <laughs> well, yes. Uh, the mystery is why when there were equal amounts okay. in the early universe, why yeah. it evolved away from that state. Okay, because there
0: yeah. must have been equal amounts in the beginning because everything yeah. was equal in the beginning. So we think. So we think. I
1: mean, the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. The very, very yeah,
0: beginning. Yeah, but uh, lucky for us, there, the antimatter went away, and a lot of matter was left over, and uh, that's why there's a universe now—a
1: livable universe. A say.
0: livable universe. Okay, great. But we're we're talking now about the fact that what might have seemed like a confusing array of particles actually boils down to some fairly simple groupings: three yes. three generations, whole integer spin or half integer spin. There's all these categories, and as soon as you start putting the things in categories, the the universe gets a lot simpler. Yes, uh, see the patterns. Start to yeah. see the patterns, which <laughs> must make physicists just, I mean, is it a spooky sensation? Is there a tingle, you know, when you start to see patterns in something?
1: Yeah, that's kind of the underlying goal is to find those patterns and and, and even more so interpret those patterns. And, uh, and that's where symmetry comes in because symmetry is a, a principle that leads to patterns. That's right.
0: That's exactly where I wanted to go next. Um, maybe the most amazing um, unifying principle of all, and I say amazing based on my own glimpses of it in your book, is this principle of symmetry. N- now, when I as a layperson think of symmetry, my my idea is a thing is the same on one side as it is on the other. Yeah. You know? The object is symmetrical if its left and right sides are I- identical. A sphere is symmetrical around a point. You can rotate it in any way you want, and it pretty much is the same. Yeah, we w- we like to think
1: it. a little more of the, of the sphere here. <clears throat> yeah, because the sphere you can rotate it by any amount in any of three directions. Yeah, or around any of three axes, and it still looks the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, with a mirror image, it's either flipped or not flipped. But with the, with a sphere, it's continuous. You can rotate a little bit around one axis, or a lot around that axis there's an infinite number of possibilities at which you can rotate the sphere. And the point is, and this is the point of symmetry, when you do that change, when you make that change, make the rotation, make the symmetry transformation, while you know you are changing some objects, in this case, orientation in space, you can't tell. Right. So, if, if, uh, Robert, if you walked in and took a, a perfect sphere and set it down and then uh, walked out, and I changed its orientation a little, and you walked back in. You couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. And so that the symmetry is a principle of finding the things that don't matter, and taking that not matteringness, <laughs> and figuring out how that matters. Uh-huh. So within that conundrum was uh, uh, a lot of a lot of beautiful mathematics and um, some material and concepts that. We're going to struggle with here to to get across, <laughs> but we'll do our best.
0: Well, where is the symmetry in the particle zoo that we've been talking about?
1: <clears throat> so the, the symmetry of the sphere we talked about, that's a symmetry in everyday three, three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. The symmetry in the particle zoo is one that lies in abstract, as far as you know, abstract mathematical spaces so you can you can make a mathematical space out of anything you can make a mathematical space out of uh bank balance versus time
0: or, or say the dow jones industrials versus uh, time versus time showing you know the rise and fall in stock prices over time that's a mathematical space that chart that's right is, it's have, not a real space it doesn't exist out in everyday life but it's a yeah. way of visualizing things
1: that's right i mean you have one axis which is time and the other axis, which is money, mm-hmm. uh, or somebody else's money, in most <laughs> of our cases, and so that that graph represents the space of allowable configurations. Mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. and the Dow Jones. Actually, I, I watched the S and P five hundred personally. Oh,
0: yeah, I've heard it's better. Yeah. Um, well, when we talk about symmetry in particle physics, the kinds of symmetries uh, that, that 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 matter in this discussion today, we're talking about visualizing, in a sense, or representing. Uh, physical entities in an abstract mathematical space. That's right. That, but and you can rotate certain things, uh, and they're symmetrical.
1: That, that's right. What are you rotating? Well, imagine this graph. So you have an x-axis and a y-axis, and you're going to paint the x-axis blue, and you're going to paint the y-axis yellow. Then you can exchange the yellow and the blue by rotating by 90 degrees, this axis. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is exchanging the properties of matter. Okay, so the the one axis would be uh, your quark has a certain property, which would be, say, it's an up quark. And the other other axis would be your quark having a different property, which would be a down quark. And the, the symmetry transformation, the operation, the rotation, would be to take that and rotate it So all down quarks become up quarks, and all up quarks become down quarks. Mm -hmm. So if I take an object that's composed of two-thirds up quarks and one-third down quarks, it's going to have a certain energy holding it together. And if I change all the up quarks to down quarks and vice versa, it's going to be now two-thirds down and one-third up. It's going to have the same energy to hold it together. That's a symmetry principle. It says if I change one thing into another, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plain and simple, that's a symmetry principle.
0: And by the way, up and down quarks are just two varieties of quark.
1: That's right. Yeah. But up and down quarks make neutrons and protons. We're much more familiar with them. Let's just talk about neutrons and protons, and that's really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So let's say that um, you have four neutrons and three protons. And you can instead look at four protons and three neutrons. Same number of neutrons plus protons, seven. And what you see is that they're basically the same nucleus. In other words, both have the same amount of energy holding them together. That nuclear force, it doesn't care whether you're a neutron or a proton. That's a symmetry principle. It says if I change one thing into another, it doesn't matter.
0: Um if I give you um two dimes and a nickel will you give me three nickels and a dime Yeah yeah
1: that 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 works out actually
0: <laughs> Am I right in thinking that you know in a very crude way that what you're describing are some rules of recombination and of of again of exchange where one group of things is the equivalent of another group of things six of one half dozen of the other Yeah
1: doesn't make any difference
0: <laughs> In some ways it doesn't right
1: In some ways, it doesn't.
0: Um, So what does this tell you about nature at at the subatomic level, that amidst all these differences among particles are some connections? They're united by a kind of symmetry. Well,
1: there's a number of answers to that question, but let's stay right on track and and just continue to try to climb up this very steep uh, (laughs) slope of of gauge symmetry.
0: That's a kind of symmetry that we're getting to. Yeah,
1: that's right. So we want to apply the symmetry that we just talked about in a, in, a, in, a, in a certain way. And the first thing that it does is it gets you into deep trouble. And the way it gets you into deep trouble is the following. So I make this change, and I, I, I'm going to change my neutrons into protons and my protons into neutrons. Mm-hmm. And I just do that. And all of a sudden, everything has changed. And the whole world is different. I can look, and because I've changed all the neutrons and all the protons in the whole universe everywhere at once, Mm -hmm. then I've got a symmetric situation where I have the same number of nucleons in in the same order. It's just I've just changed neutrons for protons everywhere. But
0: isn't everything the same then?
1: uh, Yeah, everything's the same. The problem is this. The problem is that Einstein told you that you can't do that. You can't control the universe at one point at, at some time and have anything to say about the universe at another point at the same time. Because that would mean that somehow you have to get information from point A to point B instantaneously.
0: And he said you can only do it at, at the f- speed of light. At at the at fastest, at the speed at of light.
1: The speed of light at the fastest, that's right. So that's inconsistent.
0: So so Einstein said nothing can go faster than the speed of light.
1: Yeah, no, no information can no be information. transmitted faster than the speed of light. Right. So it, it just... It just struck physicists, a uh, particular physicists actually going back to Weil in the nineteen thirties and and then later Yang and Mills, uh just to put some names on this, that it's just inconsistent, the statement that the fact that the, the strong force doesn't care whether you're a neutron or proton, it just doesn't make sense that um that we require that to depend upon changing neutrons and protons everywhere in space at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because what's going on on the left side of the nucleus can't know what's going on on the right side of the nucleus. Mm -hmm. uh, Instantaneously. Instantaneously. Yeah. But, and yet the symmetry that we put up, that we set there, said, you know, and uh, we've confirmed in the laboratory, suggests that, you know, we have to change them all at once. If we've changed the left side but not the right side, then we get something completely different, and that's not going to work.
0: In other words, for instance, I'm not going to, Give you my two dimes and a nickel until you've given me your uh, equivalent in five nickels, but you're not going to give me your five nickels till I've given you my two dimes and a nickel.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. You can look at it that way. I mean,
0: uh, <laughs> we're stuck. Yeah, that's right.
1: And so that, that just didn't seem fair to to these people, Vile and Yang and Mills, and and so they they looked at what you have to do, and it turned out in order to make that fair, you have to take things and change them a little and so let, let's change what so let's imagine you have a particle floating around in space just on its on its own you're out in the vacuum this neutron is just floating out there and you want to change it into a proton and we want to say that the universe writ large the whole universe is going to be unchanged if we change this neutron to a proton but not only that if if we say that, okay, at this point in space we'll change neutrons or protons, but in that point in space we won't. And then the universe has to be unchanged. How do you make that work out? Well, the way you, you, you make that work out, and you just completely putting all the details aside, you have to change things. And what you have to do is you have to change the Schrodinger equation in a way that is very interesting. It, it turns out that what you have to do is you have to introduce and interaction you have to introduce a force into the equation you have to introduce the possibility that there is a causative agent in the universe which is to say it's inconsistent with this theory to have a sterile universe
0: all right let's see if we can sort of unpack this because uh you have just tried to get your arms around in this this hopefully accessible conversation around one of the most profound insights in the history of physics. Is it fair to say?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: And that is that working your way through this idea of symmetry, where various kinds of subatomic particles are united by some symmetrical relationships, right? Yeah, Applying Exchanges, yeah. Exchanges, yeah. Applying this concept of symmetry uh, and following that the implications to their end You then get to a point where you realize you have to introduce some sort of causality into this. Cause, you know, some kind of causation. Causative element, yeah. Causative element.
1: element. Yeah. In other words, uh, it's impossible to be consistent with that without having some way for particle A to influence particle B at these different points in space to Ah, correct for that.
0: Aha. I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting it. So in our thought experiment, we tried to apply this principle of symmetry across an expanse of space. And to do so, a lot of things have to change simultaneously. That seems to violate Einstein's relativistic theory that things can only really propagate at the speed of light or slower, right? Right. They can't happen simultaneously across space. So to make all this work out mathematically, you have to start... Fudging the equation in such a way that introduces a kind of causal factor, uh, yeah. this influence of <clears throat> particles on each other, that's right, adjusts adjusts things, you know, just so, so that they can happen, they can they can happen in the way that we describe.
1: That, that's right, without without violating this tenet.
0: Without violating this tenet. That's right. So what does that tell you? What what, what does that now explain that wasn't explained before?
1: Well. So where do you start with this? So (laughs) let's consider, uh, start with a sterile universe.
0: Sterile meaning what?
1: Uh, A bunch of particles, but no way for them to speak to one another. No way for particle A to influence particle B in any way. Yeah. And um, so we can say, well, let's say that um, we need to introduce one more element. And that is, we we talked about this particle exchanges and how we represent that. Yeah, a, as a mathematical space. So yeah. neutrons on the x-axis, protons on the y-axis, and we rotate. Well, that that's the simplest way to construct this mathematical space. We get You know, mathematicians over the years are very good at developing all the different sorts of possible ways you can rotate one thing into another. You know, you could have a three-dimensional space where you have three axes, and and so you know, there's a different sets of rotations can get you from, from one orientation to the other, uh, and you can have even more complex things than that. So so what you do is you say, well, let's take the most simple possible way to construct this space that represents mathematically this exchange,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> and that, it turns out, is going to lead to a certain type of interaction. And you work out all the mathematics, pages, boards, blackboards, you know, nights with coffee, and, and, and you, you solve it, and you say, okay, what type of interaction do I come up with? And you look at that interaction, and it is exactly, exactly electricity and magnetism. Just pops magically out of it. And, and so everything that, the, the, the thing that you wind up with to correct this mistake, it's, if this mistake is caused by the simplest type of, of transformations from neutrons to protons, if you will is electricity and magnetism.
0: Have you just explained, in a sense, then, the, the reason why there's electricity and magnetism, why there's an electromagnetic force? At some level, you have. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: you, you have. Um, what you've done is you said that it's because neutrons and protons are related by this simple... Rotation, simple transformation. Now, when I say neutrons and protons, that's not right. We're not talking about neutrons and protons anymore, but it's okay to think of it that way. Uh huh. Okay. So, right. Um. So, with that qualification, but then then you say, well, let's let's talk about a slightly more complicated way to do that, and uh, one that involves three complex dimensions, a little more complicated. And then you work through it, and you you say, okay, what kind of interaction do we need? And sure enough, what pops out is the strong nuclear interaction. Uh, And so the game in developing theories becomes finding which type of rotations you want to pick that correspond to a given observed physical interaction. And once you do that, so the strong interaction... Um for certain for reasons that we can't go into here. It seemed pretty clear that you needed three complex mathematical dimensions of rotation to do that. But when you do that, all of a sudden the entire theory of the strong interaction falls at your feet.
0: So um first of all, the, the theory we're talking about, it's called gauge symmetry, is that right?
1: Well, you would say gauge
0: theory. Gauge theory. Gauge theory is the name given to this this theory that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, and as you just said, it, it, it tends to, to explain electromagnetism, one of the four forces, and the strong nuclear force, another of the four forces.
1: That, that's right. I mean, it, it, it gives a more fundamental basis. It, it describes them in terms of an organizing mathematical principle, which is what is the underlying exchange, the nature of the underlying exchange, between as we're saying, neutrons and protons, is if it's very simple. If, if nature adheres to a very simple underlying exchange principle, then we would get something that looks like electromagnetism. Well, we see electromagnetism, so that mm-hmm. means nature adheres to that principle. Yeah. Um, then there's a whole bunch of other principles, more complex principles. Um, the one that involves three complex dimensions. You can work it out, and you get the strong force. So nature hues also to that underlying principle. So for every f- new type of force that we want to think about, there's a new abstract space.
0: So let, let's cut to the chase. And the chase in, in in physics is unification. That is, boiling all the stuff we've talked about down into some real concise, single or small set of principles. Right. Have we discovered it? Is it this symmetry at the bottom of everything, out of which flows the electromagnetic force, the strong force, maybe also gravity and the uh, the weak nuclear force as well? Is that it? Is that uh, the no, holy grail? We
1: we haven't discovered it yet because <laughs> oh, we have we have different. Spaces. Each of these, we have one space uh, where you, okay, where you trans uh, transform these neutrons into the protons. I got
0: it. I got it. So, so, so it, it may be the same ma- set of mathematical techniques, but unfortunately, it doesn't all boil down to one space in which you can rotate things and give rise to all the phenomena we're talking about. Not yet. Not yet. But that's
1: what we want to do. Is we want to understand the uber space. Uber space. You know, we want to see that there is an overlying space. I mean, think about. Think. Remember from last time, we had the two-dimensional being mm-hmm. uh, going around unwittingly in, th- in three dimensions. Yeah. Oh, so we can take that her two-dimensional space, and then we can add another dimension to it, and so her two-dimensional space is contained, and we would say embedded mm-hmm. in three-dimensional space. Right. So now we've got the space that c- controls electricity and magnetism, and we've got the space that controls a strong force and another space that controls the weak force and maybe gravity. And we like to understand the overlying space in which all these spaces are embedded.
0: Uh So that's one approach.
1: Uh Uh, Maybe the best approach, most promising approach to unification, find that over uh, overlying space.
0: And this would be unification within the standard model of particle physics.
1: Well, no, you wouldn't call that the standard model because it, it incorporates the standard model, ah. just as relativity incorporates Newton's theory. Ah, I
0: see, I see. So, so Bruce, if if um if theoreticians were able to come up with this mathematical space, I don't mean a physical space out there in the world, but I mean a a, a set of mathematical descriptions uh, that allow you to describe symmetrical principles behind all four forces of nature. Would physics be done? Would that be it?
1: Well, would this type of physics be done? that would certainly um, be a crowning achievement Uh, to test and probe. That theory would take a good deal of time. So we would want to do that as well as possible. But conceivably you would get to the point where you'd say we've gone as far with this and we've developed a satisfying level of explanation. And we also have reached the limit of our experimentation. And uh, it it is quite conceivable. It could be that, uh, you know, I, I often wonder, what this field will be like in 50 years, because you're going to reach some point, you know, either going to get to that goal, which is looking uh, accessible since the, since the seventies, although at times more and at times less, or we're going to run out of our capability to provide new information. And, um, you know, I think for anybody that's listening, that will not happen in our lifetimes, but perhaps not too long after.
0: But that would be the grand unification that physicists have sought for so long, to have this unified symmetrical description of all the four forces.
1: Yes, that's right. Although it's a little hard to imagine how gravity fits into that that picture.
0: (laughs) I know. Gravity is a huge problem, Mm -hmm. which is why we have string theory and and other theories as well competing uh, at this very point. Now, meanwhile... um, Physicists such as yourself, as a matter of fact, are hard at work using the Large Hadron Collider, the giant particle accelerator, um, as we said in our last episode, uh, that straddles the border between France and Switzerland near Geneva, uh, that's been come online in the last couple of years. You're using it to look for new particles. Um, you are part of a group looking for dark matter particles.
1: Yes, um, our group and many other groups are looking for dark matter particles. So really really what we're looking for is supersymmetry, which is a promising way to sort of incorporate dark matter into a viable addition to the standard model. To the standard model. starts on the standard model as a base, builds it up in a way that explains issues with the standard model and at the same time incorporates dark matter.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And this is in no way in conflict with what we talked about a second ago as grand unification via uh, symmetry groups.
1: Exactly the opposite. It is directly geared towards providing a description of unification of the forces, which there is some evidence for experimentally happening at very high energies. Supersymmetry provides a description that allows that unification to happen at those energies it provides a potential explanation for how we can have physics going on at that extremely high energy scale and yet have the world, the phenomenological world that we observe and live in happening at a much lower scale.
0: And all you've got to do is find the supersymmetric partners.
1: All you have to do. And where of, are they?
0: Of the, of the particles that have so far been identified, the ones we've been talking about uh, during this conversation. They've... You guys have postulated that there are uh, these other particles out there that are called supersymmetric partners. So the electron would have a supersymmetric partner, right?
1: Called the selectron. The selectron. Yeah, the S- oh, you've S- got right, the yeah. names for them already. Yeah, right, yeah. So you're looking for one. Uh, names in places in our heart already. That's correct.
0: <laughs> but you're looking for one, and, and other physicists are looking for others, um, that might be produced by these collisions inside the the Large Hadron Collider. What are you doing exactly? Are you examining just like, you know, reams and reams of data pouring out of this this collider
1: uh well reams and reams of data next year um <laughs> but uh a steady stream this year uh-huh uh th- th- that's right and so dark matter is dark because you can't see it yeah and so actually it turns out that if dark matter exists if we can produce it then it won't be that difficult to see because you can't see it in other words you're looking for, for gaps. In a well, way. Yeah, we're looking for an imbalance uh-huh. in the particles that fly out that indicates that there was something going off that we didn't see. So we spent a lot of time worrying about how well we can measure missing energy, just banging our head against that this morning.
0: Mm. Are you taking just a huge volume of, of, of essentially numerical data that's being produced by the yes. collider and putting and it into computers?
1: Th- uh, that's right. I mean, what what we're looking at is a large, very large number of collisions and uh, and so each collision produces a big splash in our detector, maybe many hundreds of kilobytes of data for each collision, and there are many, many, many collisions, and we have to sort through those and find the ones that are of interest. Luckily, this so-called missing energy signal is fairly easy to sort for. And in addition, the particular thing that we're looking for is missing energy associated with, and this is just specific to our group, missing energy associated with very energetic photons. So you produce some supersymmetric particle, and it decays into a photon, and this dark matter particle called the gravitino, hypothetically. (laughs) That's what we're looking for. And
0: I I should clarify um, for people who don't know about dark matter. Dark matter is a type of matter that uh, cosmologists know is out there in the universe because... Galaxies are spinning much faster than they otherwise would be if they just consisted of visible matter, meaning stars, gas, and planets. There's some missing matter out there that's causing uh, galaxies to spin at a certain rate. And you can calculate that it's far more matter than is visible out there. This invisible matter accounts for, what, Uh, Uh, 75% of all the matter?
1: Well, it's it's about uh, closer to 90% of all the matter, but... um only about 40% of all the stuff.
0: I know. There's dark uh, energy right. out there as well, but we won't talk about that today. Uh, we keep opening doors that we don't have time to go through. Um, but dark matter is 90% roughly of all the matter in the universe, and we can't see it at all. So physicists have guessed that it's some new type of matter, some particle we haven't seen yet, and you're looking for uh, a possible particle that could yeah. explain it. Yeah. Now, in addition to guys... Uh, looking for dark matter, uh, other physicists are using the Large Hadron Collider to look for something called the Higgs boson. Some people have called this the god particle it 's so important apparently uh, as as a missing piece of the standard model yeah of particle physics. What hole does it fill in the, in the standard model uh,
1: it 's a somewhat technical hole um, <laughs> so <laughs> we uh, that we dug for ourselves uh, uh, this whole symmetry idea gauge symmetry idea that I talked about
0: actually doesn't work oh no so, don't tell me but it doesn't got... work
1: because it only works if no particles have mass but that's absurd because electrons have mass protons have mass etc yeah so you have to work a little you do that by introducing another field another presence you uh-huh. know fields as we know have particles associated with them and the particle associated with this with this field is presence you know, you have electrons, photons, et cetera. You have this other one. And it's a field and it has its particle and that's the Higgs boson. So this whole gauge theory thing oh, is gonna work to hold together. I
0: think I think I understand what you're saying. The symmetry only works if particles don't have intrinsic mass. That's right. And so what you're trying to do is find a particle that causes them to have apparent mass.
1: We find a field. A that field. Causes them to have apparent mass. I got that's it. That's right. And fields have associated with them, their quanta. Right. And the, the quanta that, that you can produce. And that's, that's the Higgs boson.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. I got it.
1: But the Higgs boson is not such an outlier because, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, when we talk about extending the standard model, um, it's through the Higgs that we might get a, a clue of how that model is going to extend. Looking at the Higgs, seeing what its properties are, seeing if it does a complete job, of generating masses or whether there are other Higgs-like particles that need to come in and play a role too will be very important to understanding how to go from a self-consistent picture that explains some of nature to an overarching picture that explains all of nature.
0: Well, let's see if by way of wrapping all this up and tying a bow on it, um, I can maybe uh, put this all in context. We've been talking mostly about the standard model Now, you said that true unification would probably embed the standard model in a larger model, right? Uh, It would have to. The standard model just can't account for everything, the origin of all the forces and so on. That's right. So the standard model would live on, but it would only be part of a larger model. That's right. Uh, And this larger model may well include supersymmetry. It might include the Higgs Field, which actually fits nicely into the standard model. Yeah, the Higgs field is part of the standard part of the model, standard but it might model.
1: include a more complicated Higgs field.
0: Mm-hmm. A more complicated Higgs field. Uh, it would in- definitely have to include an account of gravity. So, if we were to jump ahead, you know, fifty years or more, and unification has been achieved, and um, you know, there's nothing more to be figured out, the standard model would still be a very large part of this amazing edifice.
1: Yes, that's right. Um you know as as I said before I mean Newton's laws are not thrown out they're embellished mm-hmm. by Einstein's relativity mm-hmm. the standard model nobody ever talks about throwing the standard model out they talk about embellishing it because the standard model works so well and uh it's been tested to high accuracy and shown to work within the realm the energies mm-hmm. that we expect it to work, but mm-hmm. we know that when we get to higher energies, when we get the large Hadron Collider energies and beyond, we, the theory becomes inconsistent. Mm-hmm. It's not self-consistent anymore. You can calculate particle interactions with, that have a probability of greater than one mm-hmm. of happening. And so something's falling apart. And so, you know, the, the Higgs is the simplest way to solve that problem, but... It's not been discovered, and nobody knows whether the Higgs is really there. And so um, we need to extend the standard model in some way. If the Higgs is there, that'll get us a little further. But uh, since the Higgs is is essentially ad hoc, um, we'll we'll need to keep working, even if we discover the Higgs. If it's not there, then there are other paths that we're going to need to pursue but they will never throw out the standard model because the standard model, the symmetry principles that we've developed and turned into the description of the forces, those work. Those work at any energy, any process that we've tested so far.
0: You know, I'm hoping for a little symmetry of my own um, between the models you've described as conceived by real physicists like you And the kind of boiled down and often metaphorical descriptions we've given in this radio show, I hope there's real symmetry there. Me too. (laughs) Bruce, uh, you know, thanks so much for uh, putting this effort out, though. Uh, I think it's a really difficult thing to accomplish in radio, and uh, I think we made a dent in it.
1: Very good. (laughs) I'm glad we did.
0: (laughs) And thanks again to Bruce Shum, professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz. His book, which goes into a great deal more detail than we were able to in this program, is titled Deep Down Things, The Breathtaking Beauty of Particle Physics. You can listen to our two-part tour of particle physics in its entirety, as well as other programs, at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week.